Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. Today we are back to discuss Double Jeopardy to be Black and Female, written by civil rights activist Frances Beale in 1969. Last time we talked about some history of the civil rights movement um, with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and the birth of the Black Power Movement. We talked about Frances Beale, the author, and we talked about the words feminism and womanism. And we set this speech and the experiences of Black Americans in the context of U.S. history with America's practice of enslaving African Americans for centuries and how that continues to shape our culture, often in ways that American citizens and especially white Americans don't realize. And that was something that I really realized again from our conversation last time. So Today, we're going to dive back into this text um, and highlight some more really important parts and have some more um, fascinating and enlightening conversations with our amazing guest, Raina Clay McKay. Welcome back, Raina. Hi, Amy. You make me sound really good. You are really good. I don't need, <laughs> you don't need any help from me. <laughs> You're amazing. And thank you so much for being here again. I so appreciate it. Um, I, I just am really Really, I was profoundly moved by our conversation last time. And um, so I'm really excited to get back to it. And I think um, you have the first points from the second half of this essay. So do you want to just dive right in, Raina? Absolutely. Uh, you asked me to take a couple of things from the or quotes from the piece and so that we could talk about them more clearly. And so my first one is, let me just say this is going to be a direct quote. So from Francis Beale, and it says, quote, we live in a highly industrialized society and every member of the black nation must be as academically and technologically developed as possible. To wage a revolution, we need competent teachers, doctors, nurses, electronic experts, chemists, biologists, physicists, political scientists, and so on and so forth. Black women sitting at home reading bedtime stories to their children are just not going to make it, unquote. So I have a, how do I put this? I 100% agree with this uh, quote, but at the same time, I want to do a quick caveat before we start discussing it. I think being a mother is one of the most important and one of the hardest jobs that there is out there on the planet truly. And I 100% applaud and support and, um, have no judgment whatsoever for any mother who chooses to stay at home and make her primary focus be raising her children. I think that is noble. I think it is selfless. I think I could go on and on and on and on and on. I have <laughs> incredible mothers that I am thinking of, um, incredible friends who make me want to be a better mother every day um, just by their uh, dedication to the art of raising their children and homemaking. So in no manner, way, shape, or form am I denigrating that at all. I know that um, I've had friends actually say to me, uh, I feel like sometimes uh, society looks down on me for staying home and I gosh, please no, never. And anybody who does, I'll be the first to fight them. You know what mm. I mean for that? Because mm. that is just amazing. Do you know what's interesting is I had to stay home or not had to. So my twins were um, 
very, very premature. And they spent about three months in the NICU. And we got Mm. home at the beginning of uh, the RSV season. And so our pediatricians and their specialists and everybody else said, you are literally going nowhere until Mm. this RSV season is over. So I spent, um, the the only place we went was the doctor's office. And um, so I had to spend basically another almost five months. Um, My husband jokingly called it under house arrest because Mm -hmm. I became the primary person who did not leave the house unless the boys Mm. were going to the pediatrician. And so um, I had a pure, well, seven, eight months total because they were in the NICU for that time. And I didn't work during that time of um, doing what my amazing friends do every day. And my goodness, hats off to them. I I mean, I realized by the time that three quarters of a year was over (laughs) that there was um, efficacy for me in going to a hospital. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you had, I mean, I have to say too, Raina, did you not have like a two-year-old and newborn twins? I did. (laughs) I mean, how do you even survive that? Like I don't know. I don't remember. How did it. you actually keep them all alive? Like, oh my heavens! Oh. Like I seriously don't remember it. Thank goodness for pictures and videos because yeah. I remember nothing. But you know what? I also discovered, and um, I don't want to shout out like specific companies, but there's a certain company who delivers to you within hours oh, anything yeah. you want. I discovered yeah. the power of an app. Let me tell you. Oh, totally. <laughs> I, yeah, I bet. That's yeah, amazing. So, that was I um, my delivery man literally became like my favorite friend. And he yeah. got to the point where he knew like the twins sleep schedule oh. and he knew when they were having therapy and stuff. And like literally we would just leave our front door open or unlocked and he would come in like he knew if he was delivering during the twins like nap schedule, he would come in take off his shoes, bring in the boxes into our house and then leave without even clicking the door. And like, it was so sweet. It was this older man in his probably late fifties, early sixties. And then like when they would have therapy, he would come in and he'd be like, way to go boys. You're lifting up your head. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I mean, this feels like maybe it's like a a tangent to the story and yeah, but honestly, like just that little, I, I mean, I'm so happy that we happened upon that little yeah. anecdote because it highlights the goodness of men. Yes. Like just an everyday yes. interaction of, yes. and my listeners will know how important it is to me. Now, this is an aside. I didn't mean to hijack your story, but I'm no, just, no, I'm no. just saying like, perfect. what a beautiful story. And just to show like, we're talking about systemic injustices on this yes. podcast, but I keep saying this is, this is about, you know, how much globally um, and society and the structure not the yes people. because yep. and and boys and men suffer <clears throat> in mm-hmm. these systems too this isn't about like women are great and men are bad that is a beautiful story about isn't that just amazing? everyday goodness of human beings i yeah. love that and this is i mean this is somebody who and not that i think there is more feminist or more masculine parts of um jobs or things like that. I mean, I guess there are, but this is a physical job. This was a very large man physicality. I learned a lot about him during those eight months Mm. and he was um, former military. So this is a very, what society would say, a manly man. 
right? Mm -hmm. And he literally took it upon himself and he was so thoughtful and so good to learn we were we were nobody you know what i mean mm-hmm. we were just a stop on his delivery route but mm-hmm. because i needed so much and because i could not go anywhere right he became a part of our daily lives and he was had such a beautiful heart in that he mm-hmm. realized okay i'm i'm showing up during the twins nap time i don't want to disturb them so i'm going to do this and he did like every day and we we trusted him honestly when we ended up moving about two and a half years later that was one of the saddest things was having to say goodbye Mm. to that man you know what i mean like isn't that crazy like because he was just he was just the loveliest and like you said i think it really truly people are good Mm-hmm. Sometimes society we've created um, difficult or oppressive systems, you know, mm-hmm. but I really, truly think baseline people are good, you mm-hmm. know? I love that, Raina. Yeah. Yeah. So anywho, we got on a total tangent just oh, from that's okay. bringing that up. But I did. I wanted to caveat that because mm-hmm. I I feel so strongly about how much I honor stay at home moms. Mm-hmm. And so um, but well, I feel. A- yeah. Yeah, I'm a stay-at-home mom. I I always have been, and I want you to know that that was a lovely caveat, and I feel totally valued <laughs> and validated Good. by you. Good. And we we have mutual admiration for each other. <laughs> yeah, so that yeah. that's really nice. So I think it's super important to. Um, once again, let's talk about society, right? We mm-hmm. have, we've been talking, our last time we talked about society and its structure and how it um, has systemically um, created itself or been built upon the enslavement and the oppression of a certain group of people, right? Mm-hmm. So um, when you do that, it, less of those people are in positions of power in positions of education. Less of those people are sitting at the table just because of the way the structure and the system is structured, right? Mm -hmm. Education is a door that opens opportunity. And so when you become educated and when you strive for education and when you place yourself in all of those positions, you know, from teachers to scientists to electronic experts to biologists to physicists into political positions, right? You are at least right outside the door of the boardroom, if not sitting at the table of the boardroom. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. representation matters. I know that's a, um, a pat statement, I guess, in a way, but it's true. Mm-hmm. If you are there, what you are not only doing is helping the people who are in positions of power see that you are capable, see that you are competent, and see that you represent all of the amazing facets of the rest of your group of people, right? But what it also does is it allows you to bring a perspective that is different. And diversity of thought is what helps us move forward. And Mm -hmm. so you add that diversity of thought and that diversity of experience into the places where we are making the decisions. Mm-hmm. You know? That's, yeah. That's really neat to hear you say that. What I'm, I, when I, when I read this whole essay by Beale and it, and it came through in that quote that you just read too, it's, it's, it's a revolution that she's advocating and it feels very like, to me, I would even say the word aggressive. I, I feel mm-hmm. like it's like, oh, yeah. Oh, I yeah. mean, she yes. uses the word like black nation and yeah. to wage a revolution. Oh, yeah. 
And so she's, to me in that quote, I feel like she's saying like, we can't waste any, it almost feels like, you know, the communist manifesto or something where she's like, (laughs) all the workers unite, right? Like all the black people need to, and this is the time of, you know, like we talked about Stokely Carmichael saying black power, black Black Mm -hmm. Panthers were, you know, it was, this was really getting, gaining momentum. And, but what I hear from you is like advocating the same thing, but in a gentler yes. tone. Yes. Would you say, am I understanding you correctly? You like, are do you are 100% understanding me. Yep. Okay. Like, cause are you, I mean, I, I'm thinking like, is that different from what you just said about like needing more diversity and representation in rooms where decisions are being made? Is that different from what Beale is talking about? Is she wanting war or is she wanting reform? Are mm. there differences in, in what you are advocating for or is it the same, but you just have a different tone? I think, well, I wish, I hope one day, maybe if there is an afterlife, et cetera, I can sit down and I can actually talk to Frances Beale and find out mm-hmm. exactly what she was thinking, right? Mm-hmm. But um I think we're advocating for the same thing. I think Mm. we just have a different approach. And I think that's where the diversity of experience and thought comes in, right? Mm. Because Mm. um, my sister and I were joking about this the other day. Um, She calls me the calm one. She calls me Mm. the, the, what is the word she uses? Pragmatic. That's what she Mm. says. She's Mm -hmm. like, you are the pragmatic one. And my sister is the Francis Beale. Does that make mm, sense? Totally. And yeah. we have the exact same um, belief system. We have mm-hmm. the exact same goals, but we sometimes approach our discussions of these things in different ways. Mm-hmm. I think that is partially because I'm a scientist and because mm-hmm. I know the nature of um, change and I know the nature of research and it is methodical and it is um, evidence-based and it takes time to observe and then to formulate a plan and then to put that plan in action. And so Mm -hmm. I think that's just the nature of my character versus, you know what I mean, versus Mm -hmm. anything else. I also know from my experiences in medicine, my experiences of often being one of the only or one of the few minorities in um, predominantly white spaces, that you catch a lot more bees with honey than you do vinegar. Mm-hmm. And um, hearing the words Black nation, hearing the words revolution, hearing the words wage war, those are aggressive tones, right? Mm-hmm. And when people are being asked to change um, and you use aggressive words, um a defense mechanism immediately goes up and good luck getting anywhere. Like mm. really, you know what I mean? Yeah. And that, that could be applied to anything, right? Any situation. Sure. Um, but I even know that with my children, like if I come in and I'm angry about something, good luck with them actually understanding the, um, the reason why mom's angry. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if I say, Oh, honey, what happened here? Can we talk about this? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and make it much more a softer approach. Um, we usually get somewhere quicker, you know? Yeah, so. totally. I, and I do, I mean, that is actually my personality as well. <laughs> yeah. And I just, I want to throw in for listeners 
and and again, I I mean, I want you to correct me if you think I'm wrong, Raina. Mm-hmm. For me, you and I having this conversation, I feel like you again something we you and I have in common is that kind of um, peacemaking and wanting yes. wanting to be rational and also right. wanting to have charity and wanting to see mm-hmm. the best in people. I reading reading Francis Beale because I'm white. I just want maybe my mm-hmm. listeners to know this. I felt I did feel like, oh, wow. Like I felt a little bit like, whoa, this is it was it felt aggressive to me. Mm-hmm. And I did feel that because I'm white, my job was and and this is where I think like, Raina, you could have whatever experience with Beale you want to. For me, I felt like I I my job was to listen and to try to understand why she was angry, because I know that something that happens a lot is that. Yeah, nobody likes to have somebody yelling at mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. But but I felt like my job is to think like you yell all you want and especially like we talked about. Yep. Yesterday, like really stopping and considering what the history was and the context. This was like only 15 years after Emmett Till. I mean, right. this is the right. things that these people had endured and I thought like whoa, she wants a revolution. She wants a war. And I thought, think of the American Revolution. White white yep. Americans have no problem with bullets being fired over a tea tax and a stamp uh, act. We could talk about something that happened in January. Yeah. <laughs> tell, t- tell, talk about it, Raina. I mean, what? seriously. In yeah. January, our capital was stormed by basically white supremacists, right? Uh-huh. Because yep. they were angry about right. what they felt was a stolen election. Right. Like, People anger is a normal response right. to um, dissatisfaction. And so the hypocrisy of white people to say yep. like, oh, no, 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 tone it down. Don't well, talk. Don't be so angry. So I feel like what, I, what I'm saying, I guess, is for you to say you can catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. And for you to make that comment is absolutely valid for me to mm-hmm. tell a person of color, well, you right. you know you need to soften your tone i think is inappropriate for a white person to say to a person of color because of the history mm-hmm. and so do you i 100% does, agree does with does that you. make sense reina i mean okay completely it completely does because i think i, mean, I have a different role here yeah absolutely right? and I, do. I get to make that decision just right. the same way um women get to make that decision when we're talking mm-hmm. about misogyny Right. Mm -hmm. Just the way um, an abuse victim gets to make that decision when we're talking about abuse. Does that make sense? Anybody who just the way our Asian-American brothers and sisters right now get to make that decision when we are talking about anything. The victim and I use that word not as a um, not as a feel sorry for me, but Mm -hmm. as a as a real moniker, right? Mm -hmm. Um, As a black woman, I am a victim to our, some of the structures in our society. Let's put it Mm -hmm. that way, right? So I think the victim gets to set the tone, whether they are angry, whether they are sad, whether they are tired. I will, um, a quick antidote, um, in the middle of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protests and everything that was happening and COVID and everything that was happening last summer, um, we actually had George Floyd's funeral on um, because I wanted my children 
to understand the consequences of um, policing in the United States mm-hmm. and how it applied to them. Because I have black mm-hmm. children, you know? So, um, and I also wanted to honor George Floyd. And I felt like at least um, watching his funeral was a way to honor him. Um, but mm-hmm. my husband, my wonderful British Caucasian husband, who um, just as a background, he was a um, semi-pro uh, fighter in the day. So you can kind of, and oh. he's Scottish, right? So Like um, martial yeah. arts fighter? So, like oh, martial wow. arts fighter, like boxing fighter. Yeah, yeah like boxing wow. fighter. Yeah, cool. uh-huh. So he's Scottish and uh-huh. he's a fighter, right? Um, so you can kind of see baseline uh-huh. personality, yeah. right? And he was watching the um, yeah. funeral. Yeah, so don't get on his bad side is what getting, you're saying. Oh, gosh, never. And especially don't ever look sideways at his wife or children. <laughs> I, I I feel sorry for anybody who does yeah. that. So. Oh. So, you know, but um, but he was watching it and he was getting more and more agitated and more and more angry Mm. because of the injustice. And because also he is looking at he has two black sons and you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And just those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And he started talking about he's like, we've got to have a revolution. He's like, we've got to take this back to black power. And he's like, we've got to have a revolution. He's like, this is ridiculous. He's like, this has got to stop. He's like, this peaceful protest, all of these sorts of things. He's like, nobody is listening and it's not changing anything, Mm -hmm. right? And he was getting Mm -hmm. very, he was getting upset about this, which I hold space for and I understand. I, on the other hand, was so exhausted. I was just Mm -hmm. exhausted. I was spent. And also, um, for listeners who don't know, I'm an anesthesiologist. And so I was in the middle of COVID. I was on our COVID intubation team. I was, this was before I was vaccinated. So I was scared every day that I was going to bring COVID into my home. And then all of these things were happening at the same time. And, um, he looked at me and he's like, Raina, he's like, we've got to organize. We have got to do this. And I just looked at him. I literally had nothing. You know, those moments where you realize you literally have nothing to give. You just mm-hmm. have nothing to give. And I said, I can't. And he was like, what? And I said, I can't. I said, I got nothing. I said, I'm exhausted. And he's all, and he jokingly said, what about the stereotype of the angry black woman? And I was like, mm. I was. I'm like, but I think, I said, unless you're angry, you're exhausted. I said, and I think being angry for so long has made me exhausted. And I said, and I just can't. And I think that that is applicable, right? We all go through stages of grief. We all go through stages of um whatever it may be, right? So I think truly you've got to hold space for whatever emotion is coming from Mm. the oppressed, right? And I was surprised at myself, like when he Mm. was saying this, because normally I'm a doer, you know what I mean? These are the things Mm, I do. And and normally my reaction would have been, well, let's think about this. Let's think if we can hold a protest and let's do, you know what I mean? Like those, but I couldn't, I just couldn't. Like nothing in me could even move. I was just Mm -hmm. done. I was spent. Right. And so, yeah, just the same way that I hold space for my sister when she is angry. And don't get me wrong. There have been plenty of times that I've been angry. I just normally don't um, 
portray that much anger um, Mm -hmm. in what I consider unsafe spaces. It's usually with my family. It's usually with my friends, the people who are not, um, who would not be offended by me saying things. And I also think that that has to do with my upbringing and constantly um, making sure that white people felt comfortable around me. So that Mm. is a, you know what I mean? Yeah, that's that's part of who I am, which is probably not good, but whatever it is like I have to I have to acknowledge it. That's who I am now, you know. Mm. Um, But anyway, I just we got on a tangent. But yes, I 100 percent agree with what you said. And I'm sorry to my white friends and to my white colleagues for when you feel uncomfortable. Mm. But what I do also have to say is welcome to my world. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I don't. Yes. Oh, man. For you to say, I'm sorry to I was just like, Raina, don't you dare say. (laughs) Oh, oh, it just made me so. Oh, I don't want to hear you saying you're sorry. You don't know. Yeah, you don't need to. I shouldn't say it. I shouldn't. But, you know, once again, like I just said, this is how I am, how I have developed myself. But I do also say and I will say I just said it to one of my. Okay, I have to share this. Um, So every day, um, being in the position I am, I am what's called the DOD or the DACA of the day or AIC anesthesia in charge. So everything basically comes through me, like um, in terms of scheduling, in terms of whatever's going on, right? So I pick up the phone and I answer the phone and one of my colleagues who's at another institution, we have one, two, three, four, five total institutions um, besides the main hub of where I'm at. And so I also have to kind of keep track of them during the day too. Mm -hmm. So he was at one of our offsite um, facilities and he goes, I need to talk to you. And I was like, okay, what happened? And I'm thinking, oh gosh, somebody is in distress. Somebody died. You know what I mean? Like a patient, like something medical. And Mm -hmm. he goes, he's like, I'm really, really upset. And I was like, okay. I'm like, what happened? And he's like, a patient just called me an old white man. Hmm. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I love it. I shouldn't be laughing. No, I kind of love it. So in my head, I promise I didn't laugh when he said that. In my head, I was like, hold space for him. Ask him how he's feeling. (laughs) Hold space for him. Oh, dear. Because he felt so put upon. Did he feel so offended? He was so offended. Oh, dear. And he was talking and he was going to you for like, yes, and comfort. You know why? Because he said he figured that I was the one person who understood no. how this would feel. No. Oh, <laughs> Raina, you can't make that stuff up. Seriously, like you story can't. after story. I'm like, what on earth? <laughs> Oh, my gosh. And I actually asked him what was funny is once he talked it out and everything and I let him talk it out. And then I said to him, I said, well, what offended you the most? And he goes, I think the old part. Oh, oh no. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that is funny. What was so interesting is this was a person of color who, when he walked up and introduced himself, uh, they glibly said, oh, another old white man. Mm-hmm. which guess what that is that person's 
state of mind right then, right? Mm -hmm. And how Mm -hmm. they're feeling. And I can guarantee you, because I know who was there at the facility that day, I know the nurses who were there. I know the other physicians who were there. There was probably, unless there was a patient there who was also a person of color, there were no other people of color and especially no other people, no people of color in a position of power taking care of this person that day. Okay. Well, yes. And actually this is, and that goes right back to what we were talking about. Yes, it does. I was going to say, actually, I mean, I think you, it seems like you thought of that example kind of like spontaneously, Uh but it's the perfect bridge into the next thing that you were going to share from the essay, right? About, people of color and their distrust of the white medical establishment. Yep. Right. Exactly. Let's do this. Let us do this. So the next quote from Francis Beale is, quote, I have briefly discussed the economic and psychological manipulation of black women, but perhaps the most outlandish act of oppression in modern times is the current campaign to promote sterilization of non-white women in an attempt to maintain the population and power imbalance between the white haves and the non-white have-nots. These tactics are but another example of the many deviant excuse me, schemes that the ruling elite attempt to perpetuate on the black population in order to keep itself in control. It has recently come to our attention that a massive campaign for so-called birth control is presently being promoted not only in the underdeveloped non-white areas of the world, but also in black communities here in the United States. However, what the authorities in charge of these programs refer to as birth control is in fact nothing but a method of outright surgical genocide. Threatened with the cutoff of reliefs, some black welfare women have been forced to accept the sterilization procedure in exchange for a continuation of welfare benefits. Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City performs these operations on many of its ward patients whenever it can convince the women to undergo this surgery. Mississippi and some of the other southern states are notorious for this act. Black women are often afraid to permit any kind of necessary surgery because they know from bitter experience that they are more likely than not to come out of the hospital without their insides. And then both salpingectomies and hysterectomies are performed, unquote. And and the salpingectomy, Reina, is that oh, the, yeah. like a that's tubal? Ta- tubal. Yep, that's a tubal okay. ligation. That's tying your tubes. And then hysterectomies is the act of removing your uterus. So both of which would um, uh, make you unfertile. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Without their consent. Without just, so it used to be without their consent, and then it moved right. into um, it moved into a um, significant pressure of mm. doing it while they were in the hospital. Um, think about when you were immediately postpartum, right? Mm-hmm. You were tired. You didn't make mm-hmm. sound decisions, right? And so then you would get um, pressured. Then sometimes, um, sadly, uh, the salpingectomies or the tubal ligations were being performed when they were having C sections. Um, so mm. they were already there. And so they just cut the tubes. The oh one good gosh. thing before we continue to talk about um, the atrocities that continue to happen, I do want to make a caveat for the listeners in that now um, I am very proud of um, its ACOG, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, Um it's been probably at least 10 years, if not more. Um, and I don't know the exact date, so don't quote me on that. But they have changed their practices to where you cannot perform a tubal ligation on 
any woman um, unless it has been discussed previously prior to their um, inpatient hospital delivery. Mm, so good. a lot of times we do it just because it makes it easy, right? They're already impatient. Sure. So we do it within 24 hours after they've delivered, et cetera, et cetera, which makes mm-hmm. just everything a lot easier for everybody. But you cannot in real time ask yeah. the woman and make that decision. And I am right. so proud of the society. They realized the disparities that were happening. They realized the atrocities that were happening. And they said, we are going to put a set of practices and policies in place in order to try to prevent this from happening. Good. So good. yeah, so good for good on them. Like, yeah. great on them. So I wanted to caveat that before we continue to talk. Yeah. Well, you I, I mean, we were talking a little bit about this before. And I, you were talking about some other examples in the yeah in the medical in medical history i guess yep. so yeah that brings up actually something that happened um a conversation that i had recently where i was talking with um a black friend of mine and just it just came up and i just casually mentioned like oh are you going to get your vaccine and she, and she was just like oh i'm black i don't get vaccines and i was like oh I mean, I've read about that like in the New York Times yeah. or like I've I've heard about that. But that was the first person that I've known personally that just said it straight out like that. Mm-hmm. And I was and I was too. I don't know. I didn't ask. I didn't feel like it was my place or something. I just didn't feel comfortable asking. But I was like, is it because of the history with the medical establishment that you truly like feel? Mm-hmm uncomfortable or afraid Mm -hmm. going into the doctor and so I wanted to ask you about that because I know it's there's this there was this campaign of forced sterilization and there have been other things too Mm -hmm. right like what are are some other things there are so medical it's actually a term called medical apartheid and it's a real thing it's basically the use of medicine in order to um, control a certain community um, mm. And we have a really um, ugly history of that. Uh, historically, probably the biggest um, or most popular or most well-known um, experiment was with the Tuskegee Airmen um, in the early 1900s, uh, where they um, basically gave black, uh, black veterans, think of this, these are active military so the people that we are supposed to uphold and mm-hmm. um, and honor the most in our society, maybe save mothers, right? Yeah. <laughs> our, our veterans and our active military, right? And they actually gave them and or did not treat them for syphilis um, in order to see what would happen. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So as just human like experiments, guinea pigs, human like- guinea pigs. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's like Nazi level. It is Nazi level. It's worse than Nazi. Well, it's on the same part of Nazi level because what Nazis oh did goodness. to the Jewish um, internment um, right. population was just despicable. But this is the same thing. Yeah. That, oh, yeah. my gosh. So if you think about that, right, that is what my people, and I use that term in order to say black people, know it's yeah. not even think. They know what the medical establishment did to us. Okay? Oh, I mean, yeah. this, and and I don't even, I was about ready to say something like, this wasn't even like the prison population or anything like that. But then I went, that doesn't even matter. But mm-hmm. the fact that you take active duty military and you do this to them, 
like, that's just horrific. It's despicable. Yeah, it is. It really is. So that's kind of our, um, I would say, our sentinel event that we know Mm -hmm. of. But um, like we just talked about, uh, they were doing forced sterilization, right? Um, Mm -hmm. You also have, so Planned Parenthood, I think, is fantastic. I'm just going to lay that out there. Um, But the start of Planned Parenthood um, historically is not great in terms of where they purposely placed um, Planned Parenthood. They were in... um, minority communities and in economically disadvantaged communities. And the purpose was, was to once again, control the population. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, Then we have had um, academic experiments where um, prominent psychiatrists, and this was taught to me, even in medical school, once again, like we were talking about last time, things that I'm like, that is not correct, but they still are teaching these things. Thankfully, I think this has now been taken out of our psychiatric textbooks, but um, they did a... um, a study that purported that black males are more aggressive. Um, And so they were able to, for generations, say, look, it's not just you. Black men are more aggressive, so therefore we need to police them more. We need to control Mm. them more. We need to X, Y, and Z them more, right? Mm -hmm, Okay. mm -hmm. Um, Then we um, also have had, so Henrietta Lack is um, a woman who honestly – Every single person, modern day person, should be grateful to her. Um, Her cancer cells uh, were used as the source of what's called the HeLa cell line, which is one of the most important um, cell lines in medical research. Like, hands down, this has helped us with um, treating and development, like treating and understanding of cancers, um, treating and understanding of immuno. uh, autoimmune diseases. Um, I could go on and on and on about what um, Henrietta Lacks uh, cells have done for medical research up until I believe it was eight years ago now. It's within the past decade that it was only then that we actually acknowledged whose cells it was that helped stem all of our medical research. And we have dedicated a couple of rooms and buildings and things to her. But interestingly enough, her cancer cells have generated billions of dollars in the medical economy. Yeah. And she and her family have not received any of those reparations. Still not? White men, still not. They're they're in the process of, but white men made billions of dollars off of her. Okay, and so that originally when they took her cancer cells, they did it without her consent. She didn't even know right. they were being used for the research. Right. Yep. Well, for listeners too, I I actually have had this book for years and keep meaning to read it and I've had uh I, I just need to sit down and read it, but I've heard reviews mm-hmm. and um but that book The Immortal Life of Henrietta yep. Lacks. Yeah. I remember it came out a few years ago years and ago. I heard about it on yep. NPR and just immediately bought it. So if listeners are interested in knowing more about that, then I have heard that that book is just fantastic and but yeah, and yes, exposes this this real atrocity that yep. happened and this injustice that happened in the uh, mm-hmm. in the medical community. And and you're right to point, this goes back to our last um, episode too, when we talk about the capital, mm-hmm. right? Capital. Like that, just that you brought up just then that that it's still the people who have always been in power who have profited off of 
Mm-hmm. This woman, they literally stole something from, from her, yeah. a black woman, used Once it again. without her permission. Yes. And Modern then day there, slavery. Yes. And then <laughs> white people continue to profit from but, it. Yep. How? <sighs> yep. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, may- it's a real thing. And I think probably for me, um, one of the things that is the most besides probably the Tuskegee experiment, but the one of the mm-hmm. things that's most um, disturbing to me. So I am an obstetric anesthesiologist. So my mm. whole specialty, um, my whole focus of my career is the perinatal period of women. And then what I do um, how I'm involved with them. So um, mm-hmm. I work with women all of the time, or I did until I became chief. And now I get women and men and kids and everybody else in between. But um, mm-hmm. that is the that's my um, primary uh, focus and specialty in my career. And the basis of all modern day gynecology, and this is the thing, is this person, um, I don't even need to, I'm not even going to voice his name, but he is the father of modern day gynecology and obstetrics. He is the base of every textbook that is still on every one of our shelves. He is um, quoted left, right, and center. Every sentinel piece of gynecology research is basically based on things that he um, started in the field, right? Mm -hmm. He learned everything that he did, that he published, and all of his research is based on he did experiments on Black women without anesthesia no mm-hmm. oh my gosh so he performed hysterectomies he performed no. tubals oh, he Rena. he performed um like cervical research he did everything based on black women without anesthesia because he was also trying to see pain tolerance levels and what the human body could and could not the female human body could and could not tolerate I can't even process that. When was when was this happening? It was black slave women, so it was the 1800s. Oh my gosh! Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh! Mm-hmm. <sighs> so no wonder my people are distrustful of the medical environment, right? Um, so no wonder with COVID and with this vaccine development. And by the way, for all listeners, please do not think that this vaccine was rushed. It was not at all. Um, What we did is we used previous literature and previous research that we know on how to make an effective vaccine and applied it to the COVID vaccine instead of coming up with a new way to develop a vaccine. New ways to develop vaccines take 7 to 10 to 12 years. So instead, what we did is we applied it to historical knowledge and we knew it would work. And so that's one of the reasons, besides the fact that all of the pharmaceutical companies worked together and there were lots of really, really good things that went on with developing the COVID vaccine. But just know, I know a lot of people say it's rushed and that's concerning to them. And I think that's a valid concern, but it is not rushed. We just did our due diligence and we did it correctly this time rather than taking Mm -hmm. all the years that we usually do to uh, um, develop things. Right. Because of the situation. I just want to throw that out there. There's my COVID vaccine plug. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, and I saw on Facebook when you got your vaccine that you had pictures. Like, I just, I'm vaccinated now. And that's that's really important. Yeah, and I, I promise it. I haven't grown horns and I'm not shedding, <laughs> can't shed the virus and I'm the same person yes. I normally am. And I've right. had it in my system now for six months, y'all. So we're right. good. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. You're good. Oh, that's well, you're fantastic. Good. But as you can see, like, so 
you know, just the way your stories of your family and um, your um, your family migration and family traditions pass through, mm-hmm. um, yeah. the same way is the mistrust of the medical mm-hmm. environment because we know what medicine has done to us. Right. And we still even currently there's a great um, piece on NPR right now about how a certain zip code in Chicago, the black residents die 30 years earlier than their white counterparts. No way. 30 years earlier. And that is in 2020. Mm -hmm. y'all. That's in 2020 and 2021. And it's because um, we still have a system that. differentiates between their black and their white patients, um, Mm -hmm. both um, with conscious bias and unconscious bias, both with Mm -hmm. there is a stressor that comes as being black in America. So that actually contributes to um, the um, lifetime span. So that is an acknowledgement that we have to figure out how to fix. So there's that. Right. But Mm -hmm. in terms of basic DNA and genetics, there should be no other reason besides that psychological stressor um, why we should have such a disparity between the lifespans of black and white people. Um, People will say things like, oh, obesity, oh, um, diabetes, oh, hypertension, oh, X, Y, and Z. No. Mm -hmm. Obesity is the same, um, has basically the same penetration in black and white communities. Hypertension has basically the same penetration in black and white communities. But I will tell you, the control of hypertension is better in the Caucasian community than it is Mm -hmm. in the African-American community. The control Mm -hmm. of diabetes is better in the Caucasian community than it is in the African-American community. I'm also not going to um, not acknowledge that part of that has to do with the distrust of the black patient, right? So a lot of times when doctors say do X, Y, and Z, they take oh they won't that, do it because right, they, they don't trust do the doctor because they don't trust yeah. the doctor. So there yeah. is a this is not just the medical system doing this to them. You know what I mean? It's a, like, but, but it's a vicious cycle at that is. point, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Yeah, that makes sense. And and like we talked about. Last time, even you and your life with the ulcers and the migraines, and I referenced and I'll reference it again, but there's a chapter in Isabel Wilkerson's book cast and it's called like it's something about cortisol and shortened telomeres, right? To just have cortisol going through your body constantly. Yep. It does. It causes health problems that do it. It shortens Shortens your your life. life. Via like other diseases that's then set in because Mm -hmm. the cortisol has weakened your immune system system. or your telomeres are shortened and yeah yeah it just weakens the whole the the body's whole system right like there is real physiological evidence of that right yeah right yeah so um i actually read this on social media and i couldn't um find the exact source and i will say it was either um the New York Times, NPR, or CNN. And I, mm-hmm. I I, went through all of my saved quotes and everything because I swore I had saved it, but I guess I hadn't, right? It's so fine. It you was, don't have to anyway. cite it. Yeah. I'm <laughs> like, whatever. But basically <laughs> what um, the quote said was that this, um, the speaker was saying that they were tired of the phrase, quote, black people distrust medicine. That's thrown around a lot. Right. It's Mm -hmm. always, well, black people distrust medicine, so they've got to trust us. They've just Mm got to trust us. They've just got to trust us. Right. Um, And they said that that should be changed to, quote, medicine because of its historic mistreatment of black people. 
needs to re-earn the trust of the Black community. And I was there like, we go. bingo. Yeah. Bingo. And I will say that um, especially um, our federal government and there have been state and local agencies that have really, really tried to do their due diligence and head to, let's say, the minority communities first, let's say, with the COVID vaccine and those sorts of things. But interestingly enough, they've had reticence. They've been met with reticence, right? Because, Mm -hmm. and I will, um, I don't want to um, specify who it was, but a Black friend of mine, she um, was one of these people who they came knocking on the doors, handing out flyers saying, we are going to have a COVID vaccine pu- vaccine push in your neighborhood this weekend. You know, people who truly have the best interest of this community at my, at heart. I, I believe that 100%. She came back to me because I'm a physician and she goes, don't trust them. I'm not going to do it. And I said, but this is the reasons why. And I tried to explain to her, we've had a disparity. We have we have um, historically treated minority communities wrong. So we're trying to do this right this time and do it first, right? And mm-hmm. um, she looked at me and she goes, no, they aren't. They're just using us as an experiment to see what happens before they give it to white oh, people. Really? And I went, shoot. And I'm her friend. We've known each other for four years. We're very, very close. I see her every week. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And she trusts yeah. me. She trusts me as a physician. 99% of the time, she trusts what I say. But that I have still not been able to convince this person to get a vaccine. Wow. Mm-hmm. Too much damage has been done, it So much like. damage has so been done. So much damage. So much yeah. damage. Yep. So I really, truly believe that is like my life's mission as an African-American physician. Right. But also, Mm -hmm. I think it needs to be our global mission in -hmm. terms of medicine, in our medical community. We have to re-earn the trust of our minority communities. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's powerful. So here we go. Quote again. Another major differentiation is that the white woman's liberation movement is basically middle class. Very few of these women suffer the extreme economic exploitation that most black women are subjected to day by day. It is not an intellectual persecution alone. The movement is not a psychological outburst for us. It is quite real. We as black women have got to deal with the problems that the black masses deal with for our problems in reality are one and the same, unquote. So um, this is what I really think is kind of the crux of the matter and the reason why the stereotype of the angry black woman exists and persists um, in modern day society, because this is our life day in, day out. And I kind of feel like, you know, I, I shared that example of last summer, but I feel like if you are not angry as a black woman, you are exhausted. And if you are exhausted, you can't function. And if you don't function, then society has the excuse to chew you up and spit you out. And then you have, quote, justified, unquote, systemic racism. Wow. Yeah, that that is one of the things that has stood out the most for me from from these conversations with you, Reina. And, and I thought that was such a 
powerful example to hear about how you were feeling during the the George Floyd funeral and to have you just say, I'm too tired to even fight anymore. I mean, and then if everybody's just so tired, is this what you're saying, Raina? That if you just get to that point of fatigue, then it's like, then the system can never change because people are just like, I'm tired of fighting. It's almost easier to just be like, forget it. Just go along with it. It's just too hard to change. And then it doesn't. And that's why it it takes so long, partly. Yeah. Is that right? Oh, it's completely right. I remember um, years ago, because I sometimes go, why am I tired? Why am I exhausted? Mm. Why am I this? Because I don't particularly think I am any more special than my next door neighbors or anything else. You know what I mean? It's just whatever. Um, I believe we are all individuals and we all have value. Um, So I think sometimes I um, maybe um, downplay or I don't want to use the word disparage, but in some ways I do. Um, I just try to say, you know, Raina, uh, it is what it is pick up and move on and do your best, but just come on. Don't, don't, don't think you have it harder than anybody else does or whatever it may be. But um, years ago we were, Dominic and I were interviewed uh, actually by NPR for Hmm. um, Loving Day, uh, which, which celebrates um, the, um, the change in our constitution, which is so sad to even think that that was just, Less, a little over 50 years ago, where yeah. it wasn't illegal for a um, black man um, or a black woman, excuse me, for black and to have interracial couples. Let's just put it that way. It was a white man. The lovings were a white man and a black woman. Um, but um, it just uh, made it actually legal for you to have an interracial relationship. And mm. um, that uh, interview happened just a few months after I'd had the boys. And uh, she was a great interviewer, as people on NPR are. And Mm -hmm. uh, uh, they get you to say your truth and they get you to say the unspoken things, right, Mm. that um, you often try not to because whatever it may be, you're protecting yourself, society, whatever it may be. And in there, I acknowledge that when I was pregnant with my boys, I... um, So I did genetic testing because I was a quote unquote older mom. I think I was 33 when I was pregnant with them. But after the age of 30, you can do genetic testing just with your blood and those sorts of things. And Mm -hmm. um, what they do is they spin down your blood and they separate the mom's um, cells from the fetal cells. And then they do genetic testing on the fetal cells um, just to make sure everything's okay. Once again, modern science is incredible, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And in spinning down the fetal cells, obviously they can see if they're XX or XY. Mm. we knew we were having twins. And so if they had all been XX, we would have known we had two girls in there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But then if you have XY cells, we knew at least one of them was a boy. And mm-hmm. so my doctor asked me if I wanted to know that because I kind of wanted a surprise. My husband never liked the idea of surprises with babies. He's like, it's already mm-hmm. surprise enough. You're pregnant. Can we just find out what we're having? <laughs> um, That's funny. But I want like, I always like the idea of surprises. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, so I, they said, do you want to know that? And I said, well, at least if I know that, then I know what one of them is and the second one can be a surprise, right? Mm -hmm. And so they said, um, there's XY cells in there and they're like, congratulations, you're having at least one boy. 
And mm. then um, I had an ultrasound a few days later or whatever. And they were like, you want to find out the sex of the other one? And I very quickly said no. And I was like, no. And they and it was funny because the ultrasound tech was like, are you OK? And I was like, no, I just don't want to know. Just don't tell me. And uh, she moved on and everything else. And um, and the thing about it is I didn't want to know because I already knew I was having one black son. And I didn't want to have two. And that is an awful thing to admit as a mother. But that is the baseline of all of this. Is there is this constant cortisol and this constant stress. And knowing that I would have one child that I was constantly worried about their life. Like just walking down my neighborhood street. At that point in time, being pregnant with twins and being emotional and all of those sorts of things, I could not handle the idea of two. So that is what this is, friend. That is what it is. (sighs) I didn't think I'd cry on Mother's Day, but there we're at. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, so one thing that that brings up for me, Raina, is um, kind of an overarching point from this essay. And it has to do again with my master's thesis, where I was asking the question of what happened between the white women and the black women who worked together so closely in the civil rights movement in the early 60s. But then there was this schism by the late 60s when Frances Beale's writing. And um, one part of the answer for me, and I want to hear what you think about this, especially in light of what you just shared. Um, One part of the answer for my research, you know, Mm -hmm. and from this essay is that I feel like some white women thought that all women were having the same experience because they were women and this, and they kind of claimed universality for Mm -hmm. this like quote unquote women's experience. And they also spoke about I mean, I guess as feminists, a lot of times they would speak about, again, quote unquote, men being the enemy. And that included black men. And what these some of these white women didn't realize is that they were almost number one priority as black men. Just so you know, like that's I mean, that's historically and I know, you know, this from your research is that the black man is constantly looked as a danger to the white woman. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And to the white man in that way, too. Yeah. Yes. And mm-hmm. and vilifying black yep. men. Mm-hmm. And even as feminists, too, I feel like the white women are kind of like, well, yeah, you know how men are. Are. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. And so especially black men, but also claiming this universal, universal. experience. Yep. Right. Yep. And I think what white women didn't realize is that they were asking their black friends to side with white women in a gender battle yep. when those black women's own dads and brothers and sons were in like Mm -hmm. physical danger all the time i mean in the 60s like especially in the south they're in danger of being lynched and what i just heard you describe is that 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 is still in your heart and on your mind all the time and so well in 10 years my boys are going to look like trayvon martin yeah and my boys wear hoodies 
and they walk through our neighborhood. Well, I mean, they're little now. They're six. They literally go, you know, the circumference of three houses one way and three houses the other. And we're standing outside being helicopter parents. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but, yeah. but they have little friends who live around the neighborhood. And when they're 13, 14, 15, 16, of course, it'll be appropriate for them to walk around the corner and go yeah. see their friends. Right. 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 So I just, yeah, it's really hitting me just that problem of asking black women to align themselves with white women, with white mm-hmm. women instead of with their own sons, their own yep. brothers yep. whose lives are in danger. So, yep. yeah, is that an accurate reading of Beale and and... I think it's a completely accurate reading. I think it is super hard because not that I, how do I put this? So the experience of being a woman is universal, right? Whether you're white, black, Asian, et cetera. I think there are certain things that we could um, sit down and we would find more commonality than not. Mm-hmm. But um the experience of being a minority woman, as particularly for me, being a black woman, is completely different than mm-hmm. my white female friends. Like as women, society, and well, let's just talk about structural misogyny, right? As women, we are um, we have been uh, relegated to certain roles. Um, And this is a global, non-specific thing. But in general, Mm -hmm. white women have been looked as the Mother Eve, you know, the Madonna and child. Um, They have been in some ways relegated to being the helpmeet, the wife, the mother, but always, um, usually, I should say, protected and... um, protected and honored not that mm-hmm. we we all have a lot of things like we are tried we're tried to um our bodies are not allowed to be our own etc cetera, etc cetera. we're not going to talk about that for just a second but in general they've been relegated to this mother eve madonna role right the perfect housewife and mother um asian women um i was just talking to a dear friend of mine who's asian um there has been a um almost a subservient global picture put on them Black women, in general, have been relegated to the role of either servant, i.e. housekeeper, right? Or Mm -hmm. servant in a physicality way, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Black women, black daughters, black girls, and there are multiple um, psychological studies and sociological studies that have proven this, are um, adultified um, approximately five years earlier than black women, than white women are. So mm. you take a seven, eight, nine-year-old black girl, and she is treated um, and looked upon as a sexual object at that age, as compared to maybe fourteen for a white young lady. Mm. Yeah. So there is a very, very deep and insidious difference in mm. our commonality as black and white women. Mm, that's you so. Know? Yes. Wow. That's such a, uh, again, it's, it's a powerful example of illustrating what we have in common. And then right. the, the increased severity, though, like the layers right. that women of color have on top of Above our universal experience. experience. You have other layers. Right. And yeah. then because the white woman 
is generally seen as the person to protect, if you think right. about that in society, right? right? Yeah. Um, and the white man, and I'm not going to say the white man because I'm married to a beloved white man. I know yeah. so many wonderful white men, but the white man structurally, okay, right. has done a right. really, really good job of deflecting their power struggle and their issues onto the black man and saying the black man is who you should be afraid of. Not me. Right. Right. The black man. And right. society has latched onto that and said, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And so that yeah, is. Absolutely. Yeah. So that is where that conflict comes in, because I know that my black men are no threat to any white woman, mm -hmm. you know, but society right. tells everybody that they are. So right. it's super hard to be able to say, yep, I'm going to join your cause. I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to be able to do that. And then knowing that in doing that, part of it is going to be you have to dismantle the vilification of your black men. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that is a great, really concise way of explaining one really fundamental aspect of intersectionality, right? Yep. Of why it is different. And and I mean, I mentioned Emmett Till yeah. before, which was that tragic um example of where like yeah just the the fallacy in thinking that that women quote unquote women all women are the ones who experience oppression equally yep when if it's a like you just described if it's a white woman who is perceived as in danger of a black man that man then that white woman can marshal the forces of white supremacy and they will come to her defense. you know what they perceive yeah. as their her defense and with tragic, tragic, I mean, absolutely horrible consequences for whatever black man happens to be in the area and can be accused of being a threat to her, right? Oh, absolutely. So it's just, yeah, it's much more complicated than, than I just, maybe yeah, no, it think. is. It's totally complicated. And, and I want to always bring it back to we are still living in this exact same situation. Look at the Central Park incident. Right. 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 Um, With Christian Cooper. Yeah. The Christian yep. Cooper. This man, I mean, he is a nerd. And I say that in yeah. with all love. <laughs> I, as, from one nerd to another. <laughs> another right? right. I mean, completely. I for mean, me. He is yeah. The ultimate, and same thing. I am a total nerd. Like, but he is the ultimate nerd. The man was bird watching. I mean, yeah. Come on. He was Literally yeah. no threat whatsoever. But she was able to marshal the power of the mm. police force yep. against this man who was minding his own business. And it's interesting because, you know, we have these incidences that happen. And just like, and this is just, this is human nature. You know, bad things happen. Things happen as a result of those bad things. And then you move on. We either choose to forget or we just forget because other things are happening, right? No big deal. Right. Um, yeah. But I actually read a, a follow-up article on um, mm. on him uh, just a few months ago. So it was basically mm -hmm. a year later than the incident, right? Mm -hmm. And the impact that that incident has had on this man is lifetime. Mm. You know, um, the article started out about talking about how um, 
it was Amy Cooper, correct? I believe that's her name. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. How Amy Cooper, uh, I believe, was trying to um, sue her um, former employment and all of these sorts of things to try to get herself reinstated or at least get reparations from being um, terminated, et cetera, et cetera. And just, you know, all of the things she was trying to do to um, gain back her reputation. But Mm -hmm. then it basically turned to a conversation and an interview of the young man that she catapulted into the spotlight just because he happened to be bird watching in the middle of the day in Central Park. Mm -hmm. And um, he was talking about the impact, the psychological impact. I mean, there are some good things. He's been able to be a spokesman for um, our racial tensions in the United States, which, by the way, he said in the article that he had no desire to particularly be a public spokesman, right? But what struck me was he was saying how he had already, as a Black man in the United States, um, was on guard, But he felt like being in New York City, one of the most diverse cities in our country, being in Central Park in the middle of the day, minding his own business, was a safe space. Mm -hmm. And how that was taken away from him. Mm -hmm. And how now, on top of everything else that he has as his lived experience, he questions just basic things he does every day if it is going to be safe for him. And I thought, yeah, where is safe? If where not there, is right? safe, right? Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, Amy Cooper is mad. She's upset, et cetera, et cetera. But she will eventually um, slide back into society without any question, concerns, without any worry for her quote unquote safety. Mm-hmm. Right? Like none whatsoever. And also, even though she got a slap on the hand, she was not put in prison. She was not tortured. She was not beaten. She did not have anything. Now, granted, she had her job taken away from her. She had her dog taken away from her. She will be able to get another dog. She will get another job. She will move back into society in the exact place she was before. And move on and probably be honestly angrier, et cetera, et cetera, than she was baseline. You know what I mean? Hmm. But society will justify her existence and protect her existence. This man who already was not justified nor protected now has to double down on his concerns of whether or not he is safe. And that is going to last a lifetime. And I Hmm. just think that that is... We, we acknowledge Emmett Till. We acknowledge these people in history and say, um, that is awful. That is disgusting. That is, you know, despicable. But funnily enough, we're doing it right now. Mm-hmm. Right? We have created another Emmett Till. He is alive. Thank God. Thank goodness he is alive. You know what I mean? I'm so glad that man walked away with his life. Because, mm-hmm. but there are so many other men who have not, but let's just talk about him. But he has not walked away with his life in terms of his psychological and emotional safety. Mm-hmm. And I just think we have to remember that. Yep. You know? Yeah. Well, thank you, Raina, for Absolutely. all of this. And this brings us to the end yeah. of... 
of the this essay, there's so many important points that we actually didn't even have time to cover. So I would <laughs> say to listeners, huh? <laughs> really, yeah, like look it up and um, and read this essay. But I want us uh, maybe as we end to just share a takeaway. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I'll share mine first sure. and then have you to share mm-hmm. the final thoughts yeah. for today. So the 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 passage I want to read last is this one from Frances Beale. She says, quote, the black community and black women especially must begin raising questions about the kind of society we wish to see established. The new world that we are struggling to create must destroy oppression of any type. The value of this new system will be determined by the status of the person who was the low man on the totem pole. End quote. So for me, as again, as a, as a white woman, I want to extend that challenge to all listeners. Frances Beale says you know, to the black community, to black women, especially, I want to extend that challenge, to, especially to listeners who are white and listeners who are men um, and just say it again quote, the new world that we are struggling to create must destroy oppression of any type. The value of this new system will be determined by the status of the person who was the low man on the totem pole, end quote. And this, it, it reminded me of the um, that thought experiment that we talked about on our episode a long time ago on Olympe de Gouges, um Declaration of the Rights of Woman called the Veil of Ignorance. And this is a, a philosophical thought experiment where, you know, we we kind of see ourselves as um, not having gone to earth yet. So we're all, you know, on the side of a veil before we're born, which will sound familiar to um, Mormon <laughs> listeners. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but this is, it's actually a real thought experiment where they say like, okay, we're going to all go through a veil and we don't know where we're going to be born. You could be born into any circumstance. And so we're going to come up with a system that that we say is a just society. And the way to measure whether it's a just society is if you would be equally happy and excited to inhabit anybody's life. And so I just want to invite listeners to think, if you're a man, would you be excited to be born a girl? Would you have all the opportunities and encouragement that you had as a boy? If you are white, are you confident that if you were born black, if you were born Asian, if you were born in a diff- as, a, as a racial minority in the United States, are you confident that you would have all the opportunities and safety that you had growing up white? If you grew up in a family of means, would you be just as happy being born in an inner city or rural Mississippi or Appalachia? If not, then we do not have a just society yet. And as Beale says, we must begin raising questions about the kind of society we wish to see established. And that that's all of our responsibility to create the world that we want to see. And it has to destroy oppression of any type. Um, so I want to end with that quote and also with Fannie Lou Hamer, whom I've been studying for my thesis. And, and she said, nobody's free until everybody's, everybody's free. free. <laughs> so that was my takeaway. What was What's a takeaway for you, Raina? Well, I first want to um, applaud and 
applaud you and the work you're doing in this way, because I think that this is where it starts. And I think when we understand that nobody is free until everybody is free, um, and we really, really take that to heart, and we really, really go, what is it that I can do to um, just move the needle even an inch? Um, that's where change starts, you know? Um mm. But I think my general takeaway, I love this piece. Um, like we talked about earlier, to some people it may sound aggressive, but it's the inner workings of my aggressive soul, you know? And I love mm -hmm. that somebody said mm -hmm. it out loud, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so I honor um, Beale in that she uh, used her, took her inside thoughts and made them uh, outside thoughts, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. um, I think it truly should be like uh, a quote unquote guidebook to society, like <laughs> just straight up. Mm -hmm. Because you could think, even if you took out the black woman's experience in this, you could apply it to women and our determination to break the glass ceiling. You know what I mean? Like, let's mm -hmm. get aggressive. Let's wage war on this system. You know what I mean? In that way. So, um, but I do, I really truly think that she is saying if nobody is free, then if, you know, not everyone is free, then none of us are free. Um, but in terms of just taking it back to why you had me on here in the first place was um, the double jeopardy of being Black and female. I have got to say that I have learned that it is both a good double jeopardy and it is a bad double jeopardy. And the bad parts of the double jeopardy are what give me the backbone that I have. Let me put it that way. Nobody should have to have the experiences I've had, but without those experiences, I'm not the person that I am. And um, it has not moved me into the places um, where I currently walk. And I am grateful for that in that I get the chance to, in my small corner of the world, to actively show people that we, as in Black people and as in female, are nothing to be threatened by, that we are just as good, just as capable, and just as multifaceted and dimensional as our majority group, you know? Mm. And I think, um, so... Elaine Welteroth, I love her from Project Runway. Now she's, I think, on The View or something like that. I honestly will mm. completely admit I've never watched her on The View. But she um, is fantastic in that she has such a fascinating history. But she was um, the youngest, I know absolutely the youngest, and if I am correct, the first person of color who was the chief editor of Teen Vogue. So oh, she wow. was the editor when she was in her 20s. Wow. I know. Isn't that amazing. amazing? Like, yeah. absolutely amazing. Um, but I fell in love with her on Project Runway because that's like just mm. my secret, um, you know, stress relief. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, she um, she makes my timeline, my Instagram timeline. She breaks it up. I usually have things about houses and kids. You know what I mean? And mm -hmm. so I follow her just because she makes it so colorful. And she is also mm. a very um, powerful young voice in um, the Black community today mm. and um but she just the other day posted this and i kind of am taking it as my current motto in life she said quote when you exist in spaces that weren't built for you 
sometimes just being you is the revolution, unquote. And that's my takeaway. Is I love it. You know what I mean? Like, we talk about the things we need to change. We talk about um, that we need to dismantle and restructure society, right? But some of the ways that we do it is just by being you and just by being in the places that weren't made for you. Wow. Well, that is the perfect way to end end the episode. We'll just let that quote stand and and your brilliant insights, Raina. I'm so grateful. Thank you so much for being on the show. Pleasure is always, um, friend. On our next episode of Breaking Down Patriarchy, we will be discussing Gloria Steinem's speech, Living the Revolution, mm. which was the commencement address at Vassar College in 1970. This title is powerful because it refers to the fact that in many revolutions, people profess that they're willing to die for a cause. But she says that the cause of women's rights, which she says should be described as humanist because it includes everyone, is a cause that we need to live for in our everyday lives. And actually, Reina, that kind of ties in with what you yep. just said, doesn't it? It that absolutely when you're e- does. When you're existing in spaces that weren't built for you, just being you is the revolution, just living your daily life bravely and especially talking about it um, is is the revolution, right? It is. It amazing, is. That I can't connection. wait to listen to this episode. It's a it's going to be a great one. Um, and listeners can find the speech, Steinem's speech online. And I highly recommend reading the whole thing. It's not very long. And then join us for the discussion of Gloria Steinem's Living the Revolution next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. <laughs> <laughs>